You know, it's kind of a, kind of a weird weekend on Labor Day. It really is. I, I never as a pastor known what to make of it. We always have a little bit uh, of thinner crowds. Not that you guys have gotten thinner, but the crowd has gotten thinner. And, and you're going, you're the one to talk, Jamie. And anyways, I, it, it's always a little bit of a thinner crowd. And, you know, it's always more of a sedate type of, of weekend. And, and I'm really okay with that. I, I think it's because it's hard to get excited about Labor Day. Have you guys found that? I mean... I, I just, I mean, July 4th, fireworks, Memorial Day, great parades, uh, Christmas gifts, New Year's parties, really, Labor Day? I mean, I, I don't know. It, it, I know we need the holiday. It's a wonderful holiday. We're going to take the holiday, but um, you all function like you do in church on this weekend, like Labor Day. It's just, okay, it's here. Let's all chill out. And that's okay. Uh, we're going to have an amazing time in the Word uh, a series that we're in called Adjustments, and I think you're going to like uh, where we're going today. Last week I shared very personally uh, some things in my life. I'm not going to do that as much uh, today. You certainly don't want that two weeks in a row, but what I am going to share today is probably, um, from the words of Jesus, one of the most important things that Christians need to nail down today uh, when it comes to the things that we need to adjust to in our lives. So more on that in just a second. Uh, what do I always do before I open up the Bible? Anybody know? Pray. We pray. So let's bow together. Cactus, Mountain Valley, Chapel Venue, let's bow together our time in the Word. Father, we do bow before you, which means we humble ourselves before you. We quiet our hearts in your presence. We focus our minds to your truth. And Lord, we do this because we hope that as we open your Word now and the very words of Jesus, that you might speak to us. And that, Lord, you might have a word for us that we otherwise didn't know, or even if it is something that we do know, Father, it's something that you might hammer home more to our hearts and our minds. And so, God, I pray that as we look at the words of Jesus here now, that you might be pleased, that you might be glorified, and that you might even change us as a result. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all pray together. Amen. Amen. So I want you to think of all the different adjustments that you go through, big and small, almost on a daily, if not weekly, basis. If your back hurts, you go to a chiropractor to get an adjustment. If your uh, alignment is out in your car, you're going to go to the shop to get it adjusted. Uh, if, if your meds are out of whack, you're going to go to the pharmacist and get it adjusted. If your emotions aren't working right, you might see a therapist to help have, have you help be, be adjusted. Uh, we adjust our expenses and business to get a better bottom line. We adjust our study habits if you're a student to get a better grade. <laughs> and as you get older, you adjust your waistline to fit in those pants that you can't fit into anymore, right? I, I mean, think about it. Life is full of all kinds of adjustments. And so it would only make sense that as we now turn to the words of Jesus or that when Jesus was on this earth, he would talk to us about adjustments. It would only make sense that much of Jesus' spiritual approach to helping us uh, in this world is to help us adjust in how we see God, life, those around us, even eternity and the spiritual realm. 
You see, here's the logic behind adjustments, and maybe this will help some of you. If you were not a fallen mess, if this was not an imperfect world, you'd never have to adjust, right? Everything would always be a straight line. Everything would be perfect. Everything would be copacetic. But the mere fact that we have to adjust so often tells us how imperfect, how fallen, quite frankly, how messed up this world really is. And so life is all about constant adjustments to keep us back in center. And the spiritual life works the same way. That once you become a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're here today as a seeker of Jesus, a lot of life is just learning to adjust, as we learned even last week, by one degree in order to keep on what Jesus calls the straight and narrow road. And that's what this series is all about. We're allowing Jesus in a particularly powerful chapter of John's gospel to walk us through six major adjustments in our thinking and behaving. Six ways we can alter how we see reality around us, even how we function in light of reality around us, that will do nothing but add strength and grit to our faith. And so last week we kicked off this series with the first adjustment that Jesus puts before us in John 12, that of going from a, a need-based approach to giving to a God-based approach. If you're hazy on what that is because you weren't here last week, I suggest you go to our website and download it because it was a great start to this series and to what an adjustment is all about. But now we're going to come this week to the second adjustment found in John chapter 12. So let's read about it. It's found in John 12, verses 12 through 19. So if you brought your own Bible, turn there now. If you didn't, we'll put it up here in the monitor. It's also on your outline in front of you. And I'll warn you, this is a rather famous story. Some of you are going to be like two sentences into this and go, I've heard this before. You have. We read it every Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. It's known as Jesus' triumphal entry. But we've kind of made it into a holiday, kind of like Labor Day, you know, Palm Sunday. I think it's good to take a look at this text outside of that Palm Sunday to sort of get beyond palm trees and donkeys and things like that and figure out exactly what this is really about because there's an adjustment contained in here. So let's read about it. John 12, verses 12 through 19. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And they began to cry out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, last week, when we looked at the story right before this, I spent about two-thirds of our time working up to the adjustment. I'm going to do the opposite today. I'm going to give you the adjustment that I see going on in here that I think is core to this story, core to this text here, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time seeing it in the story and applying it to our lives as we go along. 
And so here is the adjustment in this famous triumphal entry story. And that's that we need to go from what Jesus can do for me to what Jesus has done for me. And this is why I called this message, Do or Done. And though some of you think, well, one, what is the difference? Or some of you might even be thinking, wow, well, that doesn't sound very profound, Jamie. Believe me, it is. And I would argue that 80 to 90% of Christ followers today have not really made this adjustment yet. They still wake up every day and say, gee, what can Jesus do for me over and against as we're going to see what he has already done for you. And the reality is this adjustment is the heart of this story as you will see over the next few minutes. Now, the key to understanding this entire scene before us believe it or not, is found in four easy-to-miss words tucked away toward the tail end of this text here before us. They're found in, verses, in verse 17 when Jesus, or John, is describing the crowds as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, and he uses these four words to describe what the crowds were doing. He says they were bearing him, meaning Jesus, witness. They were bearing him witness. I would submit to you that these four words are the linchpin, they're the key to unlocking the understanding of this whole scene before us. Now, before that, let's back up for a few steps. This entire scene here of Jesus entering into Jerusalem takes place, as many of us know, about five days before his crucifixion, really the last week of his life before his resurrection from the grave. And you might also know, and this is important, that it's Passover week for the Jews, a yearly celebration where the Jews would celebrate what God did through Moses in delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians, and they would have a yearly Passover celebration commemorating that event in which, watch this, all the inhabitants, or at least most of them, from all Israel, Galilee, Samaria, all parts of Israel would flock to Jerusalem. And you're saying, well, big whip. Well, you got to remember this. Uh, conservatively, though some authors have tried to argue it was a million and a half people, conservatively, we know that upwards of a quarter of a million Jews in Jesus' day would flock to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's a lot of people. It's about the size of the population of Scottsdale. But here's the problem. Jerusalem, as it sits back then and even today, is about a third of a square mile. <laughs> So, so that's not a very big city as far as cities go, and yet 250,000 people would flock to Jerusalem for the Passover event. That's going to be important as we understand the multitudes here in a minute. And it was a chaotic week. I mean, do we all understand first century culture? There was no Holiday Inn Expresses. There was no Golden Corrals or Cheesecake Factories. Uh, they were all coming in on foot or donkeys, and they'd use outhouses and stay in stables and places like that. I mean, it was controlled chaos on its best day. That's the scene before us. Over 400,000 animals would be slaughtered during the Passover event just for, for, for part of the Passover celebration. And these multitudes, these quarter of a million people, the crowds which are mentioned three times here, lined the street 
as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and they were throwing their outer garments into Jesus' path. Luke tells us this in his rendering of the story. And then John says, in addition to throwing their outer garments in Jesus' path, they put down palm branches and they would yell in unison that this is our coming king. So that's the scene before us. This is the scene that we have to make sense of. Because you see, going back to our four words, John says, all this was done as a way for them bearing him witness. And the question that I want you to wrestle with right now is what in the world were they bearing witness of, right? What was in their minds? What was in their hearts? What is it that they were saying through all of these events here about Jesus. See, a witness is somebody who testifies about something. A witness is somebody who both confirms and affirms something about someone. And so the reality is, is that they were confirming and affirming something. They were testifying something about Jesus, and you and I need to dial in as to what that was. And believe it or not, contained in this scene, in this story, is the answer. And it comes in two distinct forms. Specifically, the crowds back then wanted two things from Jesus. If you will, they wanted two different forms of Jesus. Two things that they were bearing witness to about Jesus that, he, that they wanted him to do for them. And I'll give them to you right up front and then we're going to explain them. First, they wanted a culture-changing Jesus. They wanted a Jesus who was going to change their very culture. And then secondly, they wanted a power-producing Jesus, somebody who would give them their miracle. So first, notice with me that some back then, I would argue many in the crowd, expected what we're going to call a culture-changing Jesus. And I'm going to submit to you that this is why they did what they did. You see, just about every New Testament scholar, just about every expert on Old Testament Judaism across religious lines agrees that one of the primary things that the crowd was expecting back then, one of the primary things that they were bearing witness to was that Jesus was there to set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem that would deliver the Jewish people from Roman secular rule and from cultural bondage. It's true. I mean, he was the long-awaited Messiah. They'd already established that. He was the king coming in the same lineage of Saul, David, and Solomon, whom the prophets foretold of. And so the only way they could make sense of this is that Jesus was going to be a powerful geopolitical force in delivering Israel from 500 to 700 years of cultural and spiritual and religious decay. And they totally expected Jesus to be this one, to be this Messiah who was going to turn society around and get first century back on track with the stated values of the Old Testament and God's law. And so we know that when it says there in verse 13 that the multitudes lined the road with palm branches and then Luke tells us they threw their cloaks down, that was simply a sign of royalty coming to town. That's how they celebrated that back then. We see it in 2 Kings 9 with King Jehu. They did the same thing in the Old Testament. So this is just Jewish practice saying the king is coming. And then if there's any doubt, they say Hosanna, which is a transliteration from the Hebrew or Aramaic, which means save, we pray. Save from what? From cultural bondage. 
from the, from the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and now the Romans. I mean, what was once a great nation is now as decadent as decadent could be. And they're saying, Jesus is here and he's going to change all that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so don't miss, the multitudes were bearing him witness, essentially seeing Jesus as the long-awaited king and Messiah who was finally going to put a stop to all the culture decadence shenanigans going on, and he was there to take over and to make things right. That's how they saw Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And with this, and with this expectation deeply rooted in their souls, guys, that's why they cheered and applauded, because a culture-changing Jesus was now on the scene. And yet, would they ever be so sorely disappointed? Because <laughs> what was about to happen in five days? Anybody read ahead in the story? Their Savior was going to die. Did you guys go to Sunday school? He was going to die. And on Good Friday, he died. And then their dreams were completely shattered. And then it really is a dramatic story because then he's resurrected from the dead. And then they get hopeful again. And so we see him in Acts chapter 1, and they say, now, now, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what does Jesus do then? It's comical. He says, nope, bye, and he ascends into heaven. <laughs> and they're left there scratching their heads, going, wait a second, we lined the streets. We put the palm leaves down. We quoted the Old Testament. Our king is here. And then he died, and we lost hope. Then he rose again. We got hope again. And now he's going into heaven? And his only words were is that you're going to be my witnesses. Wait for the Holy Spirit. He'll guide you into what is next. I mean, they were so disappointed. See, here's what you guys need to see. This is our simple point today. They wanted Jesus to do something for them. And Jesus came to Jerusalem to accomplish something on their behalf that we're going to get to in a minute. But, but that accomplishment is more going to be about what he has done for them than anything that he will ever do for them. And again, I know how some of you think. You're thinking, right now, oh, Jamie, this is a great history lesson. I mean, I'll have to look up the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and understand Jewish culture in the first century and all that. No, no, no. Here's what you need to understand. I think there's a lot of us walking around today with the exact same expectation. I really do. It's interesting study of what's happened in America over the last 50 years. And I want to be very clear on what I'm about to say here. So just bear with me. Don't, don't start forming your email yet to me. Let's just get through, <laughs> through all of this. It's interesting what's happened in the last 50 years in America. Um, America, in many of our minds, is not what it once was. That's kind of a mild way of putting it, isn't it? I mean, not only gone are the days of leave it to beaver and and, and, and some of the more, you know, benign aspects of culture, but um, really gone are the days of maybe some of the dreams of our founding fathers and some of the values that many of us saw instilled in our nation at first. And now we got MTV and VH1 and Howard Stern and, you know, radical politics and a lot of infighting. And, and I mean, it's just, it's a different world for our kids. And as a result of that, many of us look to God and we say, and again, very similarly to how they did back then, when are you going to take over? When are you going to make it like it was? I mean, come on, God. I mean, can't you change culture? We want you to change culture. It once was this way, and now it's not. 
And at that moment, we're very similar to the crowds. I mean, if you don't believe me, think about the last 50 years. We pray and fight in the political arena for abortions rights. We pray for, or we, we fight for prayer in schools. We want the Ten Commandments to still be on the courtroom wall. We lobby for a right definition of marriage. We work hard to reform public education. We're trying to get some sense of family values back into the fray of our culture. And we've developed a lot of wonderful organizations to assist in them. Quite frankly, political organizations focus on the family, the Family Research Council, Concerned Women for America, the American Family Association, just to name a few. And don't hear me wrong, they are wonderful, wonderful organizations. See, Jesus rides into town. And part of our following of Jesus is that we say, we hope, we hope, we hope. He is a culture-shaping Jesus, a culture-changing Jesus, because we want our culture, just like Israel did, to be what it once was. And before I go any further with this, again, I want to be very clear on this, gang, because I've been misunderstood in the past when I've talked like this, and I don't want to be misunderstood here. I believe that you and I, as followers of Jesus, should stand up for our values. I believe that we should buy for truth in the public arena. I believe that we should hope and pray and work for a more godly and value-laden society in the United States. Could I be more clear? I do believe that. And I believe that those are things in a free country that we are afforded to do. This is a democratic republic. Christians are given a say. We are given a vote. And it is not pushing our morality on other people to make our voice known. I mean, if other voices out there, yeah, you can clap at that. You should clap at the other stuff too. But, <laughs> but if there's other voices out there, think about it. Some of you don't like it when I talk this. But look, if there's other voices out there vying for the opposite vying for a different definition of marriage, vying for a different understanding of gender sexuality, vying for a, a different approach to how we're going to deal with our kids eight, day, or eight hours a day in school. If there's other voices that go against my value system, vying out there, and I live in a free country in which I also have a say, why wouldn't I use my say? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing to do. So I, want to be, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I believe in doing that, and I think that we should. Here's the point, however, and this is what we need to talk about today, and that is that if we're not careful, however, in our desire for a more godly country, we can end up crossing a very fine line. It's an adjustment Jesus is getting at here in which the central message and core purpose of why Jesus came to this earth in the first place can get lost. In other words, to put it plainly, sometimes we're yelling so loud about what we want a culture-shaping Jesus to look like that they forget what a sin-forgiving Jesus is all about. And here's what I know, and this one you can send me emails on. I'll take you on this one, and that, and I'm serious about this, and that is I know my theology, and he has promised to forgive us our sin if we follow him. He has never promised that he will change our culture if we follow him. He might, and there have been times in history past where he has. But isn't it interesting, and if this doesn't convince you, I don't know what will, but isn't it interesting that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as the declared Messiah, as the son of David. They're putting down the palm leaves. They're saying, yes, the king is finally here. And then he would leave Jerusalem the exact same way he found. He would, he would uproot no leaders. He would do nothing in the legislative process. He would not change the voting block. <laughs> he wouldn't do any of that. He would change people's hearts. 
He would bring salvation to the whole world. And see what that teaches us, again, is it not that we shouldn't fight for a change in culture? That's not what it means. What it means, however, is that one of them is promised, one of them is not. One of them is guaranteed, the other one on its best day is gravy, even though it's really good gravy. And so don't get me wrong, I, I think that we should fight for that. I hope Jesus does these things for us as we move forward. I'm looking at this next election. I'm hoping for better days. I, I am. But the reality is, at the end of the day, no matter what happens in culture, I don't know about you, I'm secure. I'm solid because of who Jesus is. And that's true for you as well. It's true. Now, again, I know it's confusing to some of you, but, but chew on that. And maybe listen to it again this week online because this is really an important issue. Some of us need to make the adjustment from what we want him to do for us that he might or might not do to what he has done for us. And that's the first example of culture shaping Jesus. Um, now, show me the second one here because we're running out of time. But very quickly, notice with me that, that there's another thing contained in this story. And this one's very personal for you and me. And really, this one's going to hit harder almost than the first one. And that's it. Some of us have fallen into a trap where we want Jesus to do something for us and we're demanding, we're almost shaking our fist at him saying, you better be a power producing Jesus in my life. What's that about? I want you to look one last time at the passage before us here and look at verses 17 and 18 again. This is very instructive. These verses usually get lost in the triumphal entry story, and yet they're so important. So let's look at these again. It says, and so the multitude, again, that 250,000 people who were with him when they called Lazarus out of the tomb, because a lot of them saw that miracle, and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met Jesus because they heard that he had performed this sign. What sign? Raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, now what's all that about? I want to give you an analogy that I think you'll clearly understand what was going on in the crowds or the multitude's minds back here. I want you to pretend that Warren Buffett comes to town this week. Warren Buffett comes to town, and in an interaction with some uh, person down in the city, say some person who really has a lot of financial needs, he gives that person a million bucks and, and just saves some poor person out of poverty by giving them a million bucks. And then all of a sudden word gets around Phoenix that Warren Buffett is in town and gave somebody a million bucks. And then somebody comes up to you, say you, Glenn, and says, hey, I heard Warren Buffett's going to be at Kierland in North Scottsdale this Tuesday night. Why don't we go see him? Now, let me ask you a question. What would be at all the motivation to go see Warren Buffett at Kierland if you were invited there? What would be the motivation? A million bucks. Because you would think if he gave it to one person then maybe he's in town to give out like more than one one million dollar gift. And so you might go to Kierland to see Warren Buffett in hopes of getting a million bucks. Do you see where I'm going with this? Jesus came into Jerusalem. Word had already gotten around that he had raised a guy from the dead. And that doesn't happen very often. Well, it happens a couple times in all of the New Testament and it's going to happen to Jesus. It was a miracle if there ever was one. And no pun intended, a very life-giving miracle that Jesus did there. Some of you need to wake up, life-giving dead. Anyways, and that was the miracle that he gave. And so when word got around Jerusalem, now follow logic here, when word got around Jerusalem that Jesus was now in town, the same guy that rose Lazarus to the dead, and they were bearing him witness, why do you think they all flocked to see him? Because they wanted their miracle. And it's not wrong to want your miracle, is it? 
if we pulled the crowd here and at Cactus Mountain Valley Chapel and venue here today, and I said, what's going on in your life? Just every one of you could use a miracle right now. I said earlier, we live in a fallen world, amen? We got health problems. We got emotional issues, depression, anxiety. Some of our kids are just doing stupid things and we raised them to do otherwise. We, we hate our jobs, but we're on our second or third marriage. Uh, we're looking at a retirement in which the money is not there and we might have to work ugh, in our 70s. I mean, we, 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 we all have these issues in our lives in which we just hope. I mean, look, God's our Savior. God's in our life now. We hope that he just might do something about that. And so when we hear about a power-producing, miracle-producing Jesus, and then you even watch some of these religious TV shows that all they ever talk about is God giving people their miracle. You look closely, they want money from you as well. But when they're talking about God, you know, doing their miracle, all of a sudden you think, well, what, what, why, why isn't he giving me mine? And, and before you know it, you're getting kind of disappointed and upset. Maybe you think it's something with you, but maybe it's something with God. And, and before you know it, you're all messed up in your walk with God. And I'm going to submit to you today that it all goes back to an adjustment. And the adjustment is stop thinking what he's going to do for you and start focusing more on what he's already done for you. Because I'm telling you, anything he will do from the cross on, watch this, anything he will ever do from the cross on is gravy. It's the cherry on top of the cake. And again, I know some of you are thinking, you think, well, Jamie, come on, doesn't Jesus give us power? What's the answer to that, yes or no? Of course he does. Of course Jesus gives us power. But here's what a lot of Christians don't understand today and why they experience so much disappointment. And that is that sometimes God's power, I would say many times God's power, comes in our lives in a different form than maybe we initially wanted it. The best example I give you is a little child. We have a little child here in the front row. And, you know, if your daughter comes to you at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and says, I want a Snicker bar. You know, no, she's looking at her right now and saying, no, you don't even know what a Snicker bar is, do you, dear? No, you shouldn't. And so, but, but, but you know, that pastor taught me what a Snicker bar is. Anyways, you come to her, your daughter says, I want a Snicker bar. Any good mom is going to say, what, at 4 in the afternoon? No, I'm not going to give you what you want there. But in about an hour and a half, you're going to get some broccoli. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> In, in about an hour and a half, we're going to have a nice, nutritious meal that's going to give you power. It's just that it came in a different form than you wanted. Could it be that God functions the same way? We've never studied the book. We need to in the future here. There's a wonderful epistle in the Old Testament that's really, gosh, it's, it's just a very raw epistle. It's the epistle of 2 Corinthians. And if you ever never read it, you need to read it. It's a very, very, again, it's very down-to-earth, very raw. Corinth was a really messed-up church. And Paul's just had about enough of them by the time he writes 2 Corinthians. So he writes some really hard-hitting stuff, again, inspired by God's Spirit. And Paul's at a real rough point in his life when he's writing 2 Corinthians. And so in chapter 1, he actually talks about all the hardships he's gone through. And then he says this comment in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, but on him we have set our hope and he will deliver us. Ooh, wonderful words. On him we have set our hope, and he will deliver us. And you read that, and you go, oh my gosh, I mean, I, I'm going to get my miracle. Then you read on in 2 Corinthians, and you read about how the power and deliverance of God was, was delivered up in Paul's life, and you go, that's not quite what I was thinking 
what happened. Let me show you. This is one of my favorite verses in all of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10. This should be the theme verse of every Christian. Really hard to make this thing fit in Scottsdale. You'll see why in a second here. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. It says, now again, this is, just so you know, this is the deliverance that Paul experienced. When he said, on him we have set our hope and he will deliver us. He is a power producing Jesus. This is how it came to him. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Whoa. I and mean, let me ask you, is this your theme verse in life? <laughs> is this how the power of Jesus is revealed in you? So I think for some of us that say no, let's just be honest. It's honest time in the house of God. The reason is, is because you're walking around going, I want him to do this for me. I want him to do this for me. I want him to do this for me. Like a slot machine, we want to put our quarter in and get our money or whatever. I don't go to those places, but you know what I'm talking about. It's like a candy machine. I eat candy. Sorry. And, and, and I, uh, I, I, I put my buck in, I pull it, and I want my broccoli, and I, and I want to get it now. And that's how we treat God. We say, we put our money in. I've gone to Bible study. I've gone to church, and I get 10% on the gross, and I want you to do this for me, God. And God says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to move in your life, but my power is going to look very different than maybe how you think it should come. You see, I love this verse. <laughs> Have you ever been hard-pressed on every side, yes or no? Many of you have. Here's the promise to you. As you follow Jesus, you will not be crushed. He will get you through it. That's his power. Have you ever felt perplexed in your life? <laughs> I do, almost weekly, <laughs> especially the older I get. A lot of things confuse me. I don't have the answers I used to. I'm not the idealist I used to be. And so I experience perplexed a lot more, but... The despair, never. I am never in despair. You know why? Because I'm anchored to Jesus. I think persecution is going to get worse and worse in this nation. I just read an article on it recently. Man, things are not going our way. They might turn around. We might experience a culture shape. But you know what? There's no promise at that. And so if persecution comes even more and more to us, like it's had in other parts of the world, as you follow Jesus, you will not feel abandoned. He will always be with you. You ever been struck down? I, I once had a guy in college say to me, Jamie, he's a seeker, wouldn't even believe it. He said, one thing I love about you and your walk with Jesus is that, is that you always seem to get struck down. Like you just get bowled over a lot by your own flesh or the evil one or the things of this world. And he said, but every time you get struck down, you get back up. Why? Because you're not destroyed. You see, what it teaches us is that as followers of Jesus, we really do carry around in our body the death of Jesus. He says, you can't have me without my cross. Come, take up your cross and follow me. But crosses, again, we make them so neat. Isn't that a neat little cross you got in it? That thing is like a symbol of death. That's what a cross is. And so we carry up our cross, and that means the death of Jesus lives inside of us. But then the life of Jesus is also revealed in us. Why? Because of the resurrection. But that's how his power comes and some of us so greatly misunderstand it. We think that his power means he's always going to do something for us or do these things for us. Not at all. His power means that his presence, your perseverance, 
Your experience of him is always new and fresh, but in forms that maybe, maybe you weren't expecting. You see, there really is an adjustment that's needed here, guys. There's an adjustment for many of us who always want to see Jesus do something for us, whether it's change our culture, change our world, or even change us. And again, he does want to do things for us, but, but, but it's all going to be on the back of what he has done for us. Because at the end of the day, and we're going to end on a glorious note here right now, um, he, might or might not, he might or might not be our culture-changing Jesus. He might or might not be our power-producing Jesus, at least in the way you want power. But here's what he has promised to be, and that's that he will always be a sin-forgiving Jesus for you and everyone else around you. You know, it's interesting. I, I find this almost comical. I, as you guys know, I love the Bible and I love the Word of God. Um, it, before these words here, this scene here in John chapter 12, three years earlier, when Jesus was starting out his three years of public ministry, before anybody knew who he was or why he had come, John the Baptist actually spoiled the end at the beginning. Do you guys remember that? I mean, don't you hate it when people do that? Like you're reading a novel and they tell you, here's how it's going to end. John the Baptist did that. But, but thankfully, like, nobody got it. But, but he just declared the beginning right at the end. Remember this? John chapter 1. Let's go back to the beginning of John. John sees Jesus from a far way off, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Whoa. He said it all right there. I mean, honestly, you could pack it up and just go home because that's why Jesus came. He said, I came to seek and save the lost, which, by the way, is all of us. I, I came to forgive them of their sin and, and get them on the right road to heaven. It'll take them a lifetime to learn. And, and again, you know, it's nothing drives me more nuts, guys. You know this about me. Then when people say, yeah, 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 I get it. He came to forgive sin. I go, really, really? That's your response to that? Yeah, 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 you get it? No, you don't. Because here's what our world does not understand about sin, and that is that sin is the deepest, most vexing source of all of our problems. Sin is the reason that we have marriage failure and kids that don't turn out right and, and emotional problems. I'm not saying they're all a direct result of our sin, because you can experience the result of other people's sin. That's why we have abuse and awful things that happen, wars in this world. But the Bible makes it very clear that it all goes back to the fact that we have fallen souls, that we are imperfect, even evil in parts of us. Can you own that today? Parts of you in which you know the right thing to do, you're driving down the road, you know the right thing to do, and you don't do it. You got to ask yourself, where does that come from? Social scientists don't have an answer to that one. <laughs> What makes me a Christian, quite frankly, is the fact that two things have been answered for me. Why am I such a mess? That's the first one. And the Bible says, because of sin. And then the second thing is, what can I do about it? And that's why Jesus came, to die for you. And the death and penalty that you should have paid for your sin before a holy God, he took upon himself. So that means every day, and some of you really don't experience this yet. I, I, it worries me for you because you claim the name Christian, but you don't experience this, which quite frankly is a real disconnect. But, but, but what that means is that every day you wake up, Brian, every day you wake up, every sin you committed yesterday, every sin you dreamt about overnight is covered under the blood of Jesus. So much so that Jeremiah says what? I love this out of Lamentations 3. His mercies 
are new every morning. Do you claim that? See, see, when I hear that, I don't go, yeah, 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 he died on the cross for my sins. I mean, I, 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 really, really? No, I go, now I understand that my sins were as once as red as scarlet and now they're as white as snow. He's thrown my sins as far as the east is from the west. He's thrown them in the sea of forgetfulness. What do all those images have in common? I'm free. He's forgiven me. New lease on life. Some of you, yeah, 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 but it sounds so easy. I mean, doesn't mean you could go out and just sin more? Well, yeah, I guess technically, but I like how Paul the Apostle said it. May it never be. Because once you understand that you're forgiven and once you understand that you're free, as Galatians 5.1 says, it's not for, free, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. You want to use your freedom now to serve him and to love him. And it doesn't mean that you won't make any more mistakes. Of course not. It just means that now that you're free, you are his. You're no longer Satan's. You're no longer this world's. You're no longer captive to your own flesh. As Romans 6 and 7 would say, you're now a slave to Jesus. <laughs> You've just simply changed slavery in a good way, in a good way. And this is why maybe now you see that the adjustment for some of us today needs to go from what he can do for me, for what he has done for me. Because if he's ever going to do anything for you, it's only going to flow out of what he has done for you. Closing illustration, and then we'll go to the communion table, but this is a good one. At least I think it's a good one. Maybe it's a flop, but it works for me. I, uh, one of the things I love to do on a very personal note is I love to watch survivalist shows. I don't know about you guys. Like on the Discovery Channel, and, and I don't like that new naked one, but the, the other one, I, I like, no, they're really, there's one where people are like naked trying to survive. I go, really? Okay, decadent culture, sinful needs Jesus. That's the way I make sense of that one. But I, I like the ones in which they have their clothes on and they're trying to survive. And, uh, and, and on this one particular show I love, it's called Man vs. Wild. And it's with a guy named Bear Grylls. Have you guys ever seen it? Oh, if you never have, I mean, it's a totally G, except for when they eat placentas and things like that. But other than that, it's, it, 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 no, it really, because, I mean, it's, it's how to survive in the wilderness. I mean, you go, oh, gross. Yeah, well, if you ever out there, you'd be doing that too. But anyways, it's how to survive. And the guy that runs it is Bear Grylls. And uh, Bear is Irish, and I like him because he's about, my height and, uh, and, and, and he's a really, really good survivalist and, and he trains people how to survive out in the wild if they ever had to. And uh, one of the things I found out a couple of years ago about this guy is he's also a very committed Christian. Yeah, he's, he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And I mean solid, not like one of these guys that says, oh, you know, let's talk to the man upstairs. I mean, a guy who understands Jesus, this guy does. He was raised in Ireland in an upper middle class home and he uh, rebelled kind of young like many kids do and sort of went his own way and, and, and he became very successful in the survivalist movement. He was one of the youngest guys to ever mount, uh, climb Mount Everest at age 23. He joined the Irish National Guard and was jumping out of airplanes at 40,000 feet and, uh, and just really became very successful at what he does. And then as can happen, again, in this fallen world of ours, he experienced some real tragedy in his life. His grandfather died at a rather young age, and he was really close to his grandfather. And then his dad died in his mid-60s, and he was close with his dad. And then he had a terrible parachuting accident where he was jumping out of a plane, and the parachute only half deployed, and he hit so hard that he broke three vertebrae in his back. And he should have died. The doctor said, it's a miracle you weren't dead, let alone now still doing survivalist shows, which he does. 
But, but through all of that, Bear, Bear Grylls came back into a right understanding of God and a right understanding of Jesus. And one of the things I love about some of the articles I've read in interviews of him is that he is really centered on what we're talking about today, this idea of do versus done. And he just lives every day very grateful for what Jesus has done for us. I, I put this quote in your uh, bulletin. I, I just like this one. He says, when you get a chance to be saved, you got to grab it. <laughs> I think he meant that more on a physical level, but it fits spiritually. Let's look at some of his spiritual quotes. I like this one. He says, God rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He sets us up in the kingdom of the son he loves so much, the son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. See, I like that. It seems to me that this guy lives every day, kind of like Psalm 40, saying, I was once in the muck and mire, and now he's pulled me out of it and placed me on dry ground. I think that's the way Bear Grylls lives his life. He's grateful for his salvation. He's living in light of what Jesus has done for him. And then I like this one. This is kind of his, where he wants to go in life and how he wants to enter eternity. He says, the simple things is what I try to keep my faith like. Jesus is unchanging and we are forgiven. Pause right there. That's simple, right? <laughs> Jesus is unchanging in my life and we are forgiven. There's the gospel right there, gang. He says, I for one do not want to reach the end of my life in a perfectly preserved body, and he won't. He says, I want to come flying in sideways, covered in scars, beaten up and screaming, Yahoo, what a ride. <laughs> See, you know, yeah, you can clap at that. <laughs> And I guess on a spiritual level, that's kind of the way I want to enter in too. How about you? On a spiritual level, I don't want to play it safe. I don't want to be a safe harbor Christian. I want to be an open water Christian. And I want to be the kind of Christian that is out there saying, he is so amazing and saving my pathetic soul. I'm grateful every day for the salvation I have. And all I want to do is help other people understand him. But we got to get it right. It's more important what he's done for you than anything he will ever do for you. He will do some things for you. I hope he changes our nation. I hope he gives you your miracle. I really do. And I pray all the time for them. But at the end of the day, my anchor is secured to the cross and what he has done for me. And I hope it is for you as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and how you teach us from the crowds about what their expectations were, so similar to many of us today, and yet what Jesus would go on to do. And God, we do pray for our nation. We pray, God, that our nation would repent and turn to you. We pray that people would understand Jesus and that there would be revival, Lord, and from revival there would be change. Lord, we do pray, too, that you would continue to break into people's lives in a power-producing way and, and, Lord, do miracles of the such that we would look back on and say, only God. But Lord, we also know that the promise is of sin forgiven. The promise is of your presence. The promise is of your grace. And so as we go to this communion table now, we cling to the cross. We cling to the blood of Jesus Christ and what he has secured for us, what he has done for us through his death. So receive this time of, type of, time of worship, we pray. May our focus be upon you with gratefulness and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, and we all say together.